Welcome to the Top Order podcast this week in cricket time. We're going to talk New Zealand, India, England, South Africa, the White Ferns and the T20 World Cup. A little bit of super smash conjecture from the mouth of Ian Smith. And we're also going to talk to Jim Morrison, who's going to talk about over 40s and over 50s New Zealand cricket. All coming up on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned. Well, boys, we'll start with the New Zealand-India series. Familiar format. Let's get the lowdown from the man who doesn't miss a ball of New Zealand cricket, domestic (laughs) or international, the one, the only, Stuart Lipshaw. What are your thoughts on the series so far, Lippy? Uh, well, I don't know if I don't miss a ball. It's uh, it's high praise. I do my best, but it is very late at night, these these games, which hasn't really helped uh, my sleep patterns and hasn't helped uh, me to, to absolutely get everything. And actually, unfortunately, the... Last game of the T20 series is overnight as we're recording. So, we're, yeah, recording here on a, a Wednesday night, New Zealand time. But disrupted, obviously, floods and, and thoughts go out to everyone who's been uh, affected by those. Been a, a challenging few days for, for us here in Auckland. But, yeah, I don't, I'm sort of, I'm always wanting to look at the positives. But, I mean, Raj, India's pretty much dominated this series. T20s have been a bit better. But, I mean, if I'm thinking about, you know, since the last time we talked as a, as a group, India won those ODIs and we didn't really even get a look in in those games. Yeah, and, you know, unfortunately with the 2020s, um, they've actually got a little bit of a weaker side as well without their batsmen and then Jasper Boomer and the, and the like. I, I don't know what to say apart from that. We we have had our chances. I mean, we played well in that first uh, 2020 to win that game. Mm. Uh, the The last sort of... 20 run or the 20 what 27 run over we got at the end of our our batting innings um really set us up for that win Daryl Mitchell did a great job there but uh yeah we have looked outclassed for the majority of the of, of the time on this tour yeah and I think that the um I mean obviously the the bowling attack for New Zealand is weaker if you look at our seam attack there's no Southie no Bolt who uh, there's still a lot of chat about Bolt and people thinking he's not going to be at this World Cup. I have it in my head that he's 100% going to be at this World Cup, so I, I'm kind of not worried about that. But everyone else seems quite concerned. And, uh, and you know, obviously thinking about people that are in the mix as well, there's no Henry, there's no uh, Cole Jameson, there's also no Adam Milne. So, like, there's, you know, there's five people who would be in contention probably to be our frontline seam attack. So I, I don't kind of take too much from that, but I think it's probably the batting that's been the most concerning. I, I did start to kind of make some excuses for our batting because actually if you look at that batting lineup, although they're regulars in recent times, the likes of Mitchell, Phillips, Conway, Finn Allen, they're sort of, they feel like they're the established white ball players, but they haven't played many ODIs for New Zealand. And I don't know. I mean, we've talked a lot recently about the difference between ODI cricket and T20 cricket and all the different formats. But, yeah, I mean, the fact that they've struggled has, has was a real big concern in that ODI. And, you know, getting absolutely demolished for 100 was pretty embarrassing at, at times. And, you know, without Bracewell's big 140, mm-hmm. I think all three of those games would have been very disappointing. Yep, no, 100%. I can't, I can't disagree with you on any of those points, uh, apart from to say that we also don't have Ben Sears there, we don't have Kane Williamson mm. uh, for the 2020 part of the series, so there are a few people missing, but India have those people missing as well, which is a bit of a concern. But just to follow on from your point there on Bracewell, tell us a little bit about his his series and how you've found him in this series. It's weird, isn't it? He's He's had the most bizarre, I feel like he's had the most bizarre 12 months as a cricketer because every time people start saying, oh, you know, 
like he looks it doesn't look like he can bat anymore at that level. You know, he's a he's a batter at domestic level who's more of a you know, more of a batter who bowls a bit. But at international level he's become a bowler who bats a little bit, I I would say. But then he's produced these two absolutely remarkable hundreds out of complete like dead games just about he did it in in Malahide and against Ireland and actually got us across the line here it looked like he was just about to do I it again he was going to do it yeah um, if he probably if he had a little bit more support maybe at the other end he might have might have got there but going into this 50 over World Cup because that's what I want to focus on I guess uh, out of this series he's actually a major part of our strategy our our tactics for the for the 50 over world cup he's going to come in he's going to bowl five ten overs maybe uh, and then with the bat he's going to either rescue us if something goes wrong or he's going to finish it off with his power at the end there and he's actually proved that he can do all of those things it's not a can he do it he's done it already yeah i i tend to think that he still needs to pr- make it consistent because i flipping it over to someone like mitchell santner who has actually impressed me much more in this series I think he what he's showing is actually that he can be an all-rounder now. He's actually showing up with the bat just about every game. And that that level that he's got to, that he shows when he plays domestic cricket here in New Zealand, plays for ND, often bats like four or five, does a really good job and, and has done it at all the different levels of international cricket, but hasn't kind of found that consistent form. Now he's he's contributing. It's not, you know, the big hundreds. It's not the game-changing innings that maybe Michael Bracewell has showed that he can do. But, yeah, I, I would like to see a, probably a bit more of that from Bracewell. It feels like Bracewell's, what's that, rocks and diamonds that, mm. uh, you know... He, Sean Kinney Dow. Yeah, he just comes in, scores a huge hundred, or he does nothing with the bat. And Whereas, actually, his bowling, I think, has become very consistent. So, yeah, I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of... I think there's still a lot of development, but yeah, as you said, a lot of positive signs. Just on the Santner uh, thing there, I do think he's really simplified the way he bats his approach to batting, and it's it's really helped him out there. But well, I want to know what your thoughts are about his leadership uh, through this 2020 series. Um, for me, I've actually really liked it. Uh, he hasn't panicked under pressure, especially in that that second um, second. 2020. Yeah. Uh, what do you make of his leadership so far? I completely agree. I think it's been great, and I think that's been another another big plus for him. And that's I think that's why, for a lot of people, it was quite surprising when Kane Williamson, you know, stood down from the captaincy and stood down from the Test captaincy because I think there were there was not necessarily a ready made captain at the Test level, but I, I think Santner's showing himself that he can he can maybe do that in the white ball formats. He's obviously done it for New Zealand in the past. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not going to happen. You know, Kane has, has said that he wants to keep going through, and, and that's fine. But I think even, you know, you mentioned that, that T20 where India was chasing 100 to win. It's a game where ordinarily you'd think this game is just done straight away. It turned into a pretty awesome game, and even the way he rotated his bowlers, the way he used uh, his field positions for this, the quick bowlers. So I think maybe, I don't know if we've talked on here or off here, about Lockie and how he'll bowl a really good over, but he'll get nicked for four, and or yeah. twice, and then suddenly he's gone for eight, ten, twelve off the over, and you're going, oh well, Lockie Ferguson goes has bowled his three overs for none for forty, and he's he hasn't done a good job, but actually Santner put that fi- third man really fine, and so Tickner Ferguson when they were getting edges off them, they were only one run, and yeah, made a huge difference, and I don't know, it's just those little things. He he looked like he was actually controlling the game as you say, and and thinking about all the different aspects of the game. 
I'll throw a question back to you on that. Do you think that's in-game decisions or do you think that's a little bit of the, the analysis coming in? But I would just echo, I think, Santana you know, has played a lot of franchise cricket around the world. And I think particularly in T20 now, you need three or four guys that have got that level of experience because... You know, you're trying to bowl the overs pretty quickly now. Um, your big bash has been almost comical at times with having to face up so quickly. You hear the batters on the, the microphone asking how long they've got um, to, to face up. But you've got to have almost groups of players where, you know, one of them's helping to make those decisions. Otherwise, you know, you're, you're not executing those plans. But, you know, do we feel as if that is a little bit of group think or do we think those are things that he's doing in game? I actually think that there is a bit of group think there in the way, they were, especially that second 2020 where they, they bowled beautifully, but I mm. think they said, let's bowl all our, our um, all of our spin bowlers in that massive block there. I think maybe uh, a captain with a bit more experience may have bowled, you know, the over Lockie bowled, the mm. over Tickner bowled after a wicket fell or something like that just to sneak it in there. That was probably what was missing, but it's easy to say that for us in hindsight, isn't it? But um, yeah. yeah, I've actually been very impressed with his... Uh, with his leadership on that on that T20 there were a few comments after that we'll, we'll bring you in here Baldy a few comments about um, or Hardik Pandya certainly was not a bit critical of that wicket even though they won the game uh, I think the if, if you read it uh, the reports then it sounds like that groundsman has been fired after that which is that's uh, the report I read yep yeah pretty, he's, pretty he's lost his job pretty rough but I mean what do we think there's been a lot there's always a lot of talk about pitches everywhere around the world. Mm. T20s in particular are supposed to be seen as these roads where everyone gets huge scores. This obviously wasn't. Hardik Pandya not happy? What do you think? I think T20 is a bit of an exception to my rule that cricket wickets should provide an even contest between bat and ball. As a spin bowler, particularly as a wrist spin bowler, I'd want an even contest between bat and ball. But the crowd, the 110,000 people that go to watch a T20 in India don't go to watch Yusvendra Chahal. They go to watch Virat, they go to watch Rohit, they go to watch uh, Hardik, they go to watch Rishabh Pant. So I think for a T20, having a, a good true wicket where you can hit through the line of the ball, and to deceive a batter, you have to beat them with something deceptive. You can't just bowl the ball into the wicket and have it do, do something for you. So from that perspective, yes, I agree. I think that in T20 cricket, wickets should be hard, fast and true because that's what the crowds come to see. I think crowds that go to ODIs to a lesser extent, and particularly test matches, are more amenable to an even a more even contest between bat and ball, and that's what we see. Um, we see certainly ball-dominating bat in various places around the world. India is one of them. England sometimes is another one. Uh, depending on where you are in Australia, Australia could be one as well. So it's just, you know, different surfaces suit different formats and lengths of cricket. Oh look, yeah, yeah. We, we're gonna we're gonna disagree on that. There's no, really no surprise that I absolutely loved that T20 when when spin dominated, and um, I'll be very interested to see when uh, the first test rocks up between in- India and Australia, and the pitch is very similar, and uh, and who's complaining after oh, that? It will turn a hundred percent. It will turn yeah. India versus Australia because that suits their game, right? And that suits them winning a test match. I think actually for India. Having hard, fast, and true wickets for a T20 suits their game plan because yeah, they've got right. spinners that have enough variation through the air and what they do with their with their action that will cause batters problems. They don't necessarily need assistance for the wicket in that particular sense to you know provide that little half a half an inch, half a half a millimeter or whatever to get the batsman to miss cure ball just enough, even with a big bat to to get caught on the boundary because that's effectively what they're asking for, right? Whereas in a test match. Put the ball on a length and it'll do something two balls out of six and, you know, Bob's your hairy aunt. 
He may well be. Look, um, <laughs> if anyone wants to hear more musing on pitches, listen to episodes 17, 46, 93, 113. <laughs> Essentially anything where anyone gets ambushed by mm-hmm. uh, by spin, and we'll go into a bit more detail on that. We'd be remiss not to talk a little bit about uh, the Indian performance. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, Shubman Gill, player of the series in the ODIs, uh, deep as well, having a pretty good um, a pretty good day out or two. Um the strength and depth of that Indian side is just unbelievable. I think leading into that 50-over World Cup, their biggest problem is going to be how to get 23 into 11, isn't it? Oh, uh, yeah, we talk about this all the time. I, I actually, And I actually think that's a bigger problem than you know people make out. I think it's going to be really hard for them to, to make those calls. And, and I think that puts... You know, added pressure on a lot of different people, and you know, finding the right balance is is really tricky. But I mean, Gil, look, that was you know, oh, that was a masterful performance in the in the ODIs. I mean, we'll probably talk about it more in in our next episode when we preview the the Test series. But I mean, yeah, he just looked amazing, and and that uh, when was it the pitch that uh, him and Rohit put on that huge partnership? I mean, that that pitch was the complete opposite of this other one. Just the flattest deck you've, you've ever, you're ever going to see. And, but just the way that they're hitting through the line. And, yeah, amazing stuff. I think that Gill's going to score a lot of runs for India across all three formats um, that India play. Did I read somewhere that he was the quickest to 1,000 runs? I think that's right. For India. And you think about the batsmen that India have had. And that's, that's an incredible, incredible feat for um, any Indian batsman. One that I did want to actually talk about was, and this is, comes to your point about fitting batsmen into a, into into the actual squad, is Shreyas Iyer. I love watching that guy bat. Mm. Looks so effortless for 30 or 40 or 50 runs. But that's not going to cut it for this team. No. You need to be going big, going deep into the innings. Um, yeah, I, I find it incredible how much talent they have to choose from. Um, yeah, I'll leave you with that thought. If if we're if we're done on Gill because I think it is just praise for for what he did really your your point about Cool Deep I, I think is a good one because I I really want I I think, thought he's done a tremendous job in this series and what he's been someone that's come in under a lot of criticism I think in recent years even uh, he wasn't even being picked in the IPL was he for a while there uh, for KKR or he was having a lot of troubles just. I think with consistency, really. There's there's some actually some quite good articles on um, online from uh, I think Ravi Shastri's had some comments and Sonny or Joshi as well, kind of talking about technical uh, changes that he's made to his bowling and things that they think that that he's bowled, to, you know, that he's done that I don't think I really need to get into or can speak to as well. But I, I think that when I used to watch him bowl, you used to go, okay, well he's going to bowl you a bad ball here, or you know, you, you're going to get something to hit pretty soon, and or or you don't really know where it's going. This series, both you know ODIs and, and T20s, he's just looked in control and yeah, looked look you know he he threatens both edges of the bat. He's had New Zealand in all sorts of trouble. Do you think he's taken uh, taken the lead or taken a step up there on on Chahil? Wow, Chahil's struggling. Hey, I, I don't. He's, and he's been struggling for a while. If you actually it's go and look, economy at, actually, he's been struggling to keep yeah. the runs down as well as take wickets. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I love Chahil. You know. You know, he looks like the happiest man in the in the world. So I, I love to see him running in and bowling and taking wickets and stuff. But yeah, I, I would say if you're picking the side now, it's you're hard pressed to to not pick. You know, you're hard pressed to pick Chahal and find a good reason to pick him over over Kuldeep and what he's been doing lately. 
Yeah, look, absolutely. I think the angle helps as well. You know, mm. It's more unusual, isn't it? There's a lot of leg spin going around, particularly franchise cricket at the moment. And that left arm um, over the wrist option probably just creates a few more a few more threats. Um, should we move on? Uh, let, let's uh, talk a little bit about another series that's still uh, underway, although dead rubber game this evening again in Kimberley, England versus South Africa. Before we get on to England's woes in the series, I do just want to... Uh, give a shout out to the England Lions, uh, so our second string uh, team, who are taking Basball to heart um, as they play um, an unofficial test match at Gaul Stadium in Sri Lanka. They've bowled Sri Lanka out for 136 in 35 overs. Five wickets for uh, Matthew Fisher, who um, has played test cricket for, uh, for England. And then England, in reply, going along at the pedestrian rate of 5.27 runs per over with a couple of guys Alex Lees and Hasib Hamid both uh, left out of uh, squads in the Brendan McCullum and uh, Stokes era striking at 81 and 74 respectively for 81 and, and 50 um, in uh, in that and 100 for Tom Haynes as well who is um, might be in your black book he's certainly in my black book that's uh, one to watch for uh, for England moving forwards but yeah, one day series. Look, I've got to admit, and this isn't just because we've got our asses handed to us twice. I've not seen a great deal of it. It's not really captured my um, interest as we, you know, we lead into, um, for me, a, a test series in New Zealand. I find it, I, I still can't get quite get my head around my Instagram feed um, in general, but also um, <laughs> this particular point, which is you've got the England test squad. Um, down in Queenstown at the moment, playing a few rounds of golf at Millbrook um, in preparation for the Test Series. That seems to be the way we're going to go. We probably won't hit a cricket ball before that first <laughs> test. We'll just have a few rounds of golf, a couple of Sambucas, maybe a bungee jump or two, um, maybe Sounds a game nice. of soccer, and we'll be, we'll be straight into the series. But um, And then we're, we've got some of the guys that, you know, arguably should already be here mm. playing, you know, one-day cricket um, yeah, across the other side of the, the, the globe. But, um, yeah, certainly I know you guys, Henrik Norkia's moustache aside, have got some talking points from that series as well that you're fizz to talk about, even if I'm not. Why Why is why is Henrik Norkia's moustache something we shouldn't talk about? I mean, that, that's the highlight of the series. I know this is not a... I, think, I know this is pre... It's I, not a moustache-based podcast, but I, yeah. yeah. I, I think the moustache predates the series as well, so it's not necessarily current events, but, geez, that's... That's been the highlight of the series for me, but um, he bowled better without it, to be honest. Possibly, yeah, yeah, you're right. Possibly at the T20 World Cup, he was bowling better than this, and and yeah, yeah. So maybe, well, maybe let, that's something to investigate. Let, let's move on. There is a current event in this series, even if it's not a current event, and that's Sam Curran. Um, a little bit of a send off. Um, it's caught your boy's eye, but yeah, for, for me, he's he's that kind of combative cricketer. Um, I think we see a little bit of of that from him. So oh, look up, yeah. I, I don't mind it. I re- no, I don't mind it at all. I like it. I love it. But I, I think it's actually the South Africans. Uh, the English, the English guys. You know, they they are the you know the best in the world. They're the the two current you know white ball champions of the world. Um, but I think asterisk. Yeah, asterisk for one of them. But well, let's not half. go there. Um, but I think the South Africans just get under their skin. Like mm-hmm. we we know that you know they're not they're not scared to have a word. Uh, Alga obviously with the test side. Not scared of a word. It's probably flown over to the um, uh, the white ball side. I, I just think they're getting under their skin. You saw Josh Butler having a go at Rassi mm-hmm. Vanderdusen the other yeah. day. Um, you know, I don't mind it. I love it. It's, it's, this is what cricket's about. And it's important because they've backed that up with good performances. So the guys that came under heavy criticism on the Australia tour, Temba Bavuma, uh, 
I can't even remember if Russie van der Dusen played. That's how little impact he had in that tour. He, he well, may have played all three test matches. I don't know. They changed their number three like they changed their underwear, the South African side in Australia. But all of those guys in that top order for South Africa have contributed in making big scores, putting England under pressure, and despite the return of Jofra Archer, which is incredibly exciting to see him back playing international cricket, the South Africans just did the job with the bat, and that's really exciting to see. And if they perform at their potential, this is how good they can be, the South African side. Dangerous cricket team. That that Bavuma innings, actually, you, I've often seen him and, you know, he sort of shows shows flashes of what he can do. And he played really well. That, that was the best innings I've ever seen him play. You know, like uh, you mentioned before, watch as much New Zealand cricket as I can. Can't say the same for South African cricket. You know, so my, my best innings I've ever seen him play is, is not a huge list, but certainly... I, yeah, he, that was a quality, quality innings. And to have 100 on the board after, you know, team score was 159 and in quick time and chasing a huge total, setting them up for that win, that that was a, a massive innings. I'm, I'm not a massive advocate of Timber Bavuma, especially in that test side. But you actually have a look at uh, him opening the batting, playing this role. He looked really good. And he hasn't actually played much white ball cricket. But if you look at his numbers, he's actually... A, He's actually batting. He scored three hundreds in twenty-two matches and mm. averages forty-six uh, mm. in white ball cricket. So, it's a good record, eh? Yeah. So I, I don't see why he hasn't played more. I'm not sure why that is, but yeah, I like the look of him batting in that position. Mm. I mean, the batting it seems Sh- to fill a hole. Shout out to David Miller, two fifties in in this innings, batting at six or seven. Like that, he does so much for the balance of that South African team. Having him and Marco Janssen being able to do both both disciplines and and contributing really heavily in both aspects. Contrary to my feelings, I know you guys love. The South African Test side, and oh, you know how they're. I don't. Um, I was looking this way when I said <laughs> that at these two. You are wearing um, sunglasses. Sorry, yes, it's dark. <laughs> so eight fifty-one um, p.m. <laughs> contrary to my feelings about that Test side, I actually really like this one-day side. It's full of match winners. They're well balanced. Uh, like I'm okay, as you said, with uh, Janssen batting at seven even though he may be a spot too high, but him and Wayne Parnell sort of batting in that 7-8 position actually gives them a little bit of firepower Mm. and a bit of depth. The one thing that they're missing this side, this particular white ball side, going into that World Cup, which we're all looking forward to, the the 50th World Cup, is someone to bowl a few overs of spin there through the middle. Mm. Uh, They've got a lot of fast bowlers, but they're going to need someone to bowl spin. Aidan Markram's done a little bit. He's done a little bit, um, but I don't think that, that he is the answer. But look... They're a bit of a dark horse. They they could get past the semi-finals this time. Um, they really could go deep into the into the World Cup. Oh, I've been you. I've I've talked a lot about South Africa recent times and been burned. So uh, yeah, I'll, I'll start, steer clear of this. You must a have bit seen, closer. I can't believe you even brought up Rashid's googly that went. Oh, sorry, it, it's on my list. I'll let of, you get to it. It's on my notes. I'm not going to get to it. But yeah, geez, that if you haven't seen that ball, wow, drift dip. Spin back through the gate. That was. This is the Ada Markham one. Yeah, yes. absolutely Incredible. beautiful, beautiful. Adil Rashid, take your take speaking. Your well, speaking of spinners and and balance of teams generally, Binksy Mo Ali back in the middle order ish for for England. Mo Ali, Sam Curran, Willie in that kind of middle to lower order. What are your thoughts there? Is is Mo better at the top batting at three and everyone slides down? Is he better at six, seven? What's the best strategy for England to get the best out of Mo Ali? Because they haven't in his career and they need to if they're going to do some damage at this next World Cup. Yeah, look, it's a big question leading into that World Cup for, for England, I think. And I, yeah, I read a stat and yeah, credit to someone else for pointing this out. Ben Stokes has um, essentially been arrested, cleared, won a World Cup, uh, been BBC Sports Personality of the Year, 
and gone on a test match run of nine out of ten wins in between Moen Ali's last two international one-day 50s. Um, so that just shows a little bit that we don't play a massive amount of one-day cricket anymore, but also that, as you say, Bordy, he's probably not been used in the best way by England over uh, certainly the, you know, the past four or five years. It's a really big concern for me. In that game, uh, we're talking about where he got 50. He bowled four overs, came on sort of first change. Um, I'm not really sure that they're clear on his role in the side. Um, and if they're not, I, I just I don't think there's room for him in, in that side with some of the other firepower they've got. If they're not going to utilise him um, a little bit better, I think, with a ball and, uh, you know, Lippy as an offer, you may have a bit bit more to say on how that might work. Um, and I know, Raj, you want to jump in as well. But that's a real concern for me. And I see a chance that he doesn't go to that World Cup. I'll have a go at answering this question. Uh, so, Moin Ali, I like him at number three in 2020 cricket. So... With, with 20 overs to go, I like him batting in that position. I love him batting at number six when, for example, in that first one day out, he came in with Joss Butler with almost was 100 at a runner ball or mm. something like that. And I'm like, England, England are going to piss this in. Yeah. Unfortunately, they didn't. But <laughs> I, I thought straight away that this is this is a done deal. These guys are going to just guide it home. And I reckon they should have. Uh, they, they should have probably guided that home. Um, but... Look, I like him at number six. I think that's a great spot for him, especially with this World Cup coming up. They're going to need some spin. Well, that's the, the thing, middle. isn't it? I mean, Liam Livingston is the other is the uh, other is the option is the other option. But you're going to have to have two spinners in that World Cup eleven in India. No, no, almost no matter which venue you play, there might be one or two venues where it's a little bit more seamy than it is spinny. But um, I've been using I've been using words. all my words this week. Rashid's first pick, though. Rashid's first pick, hundred percent. I think there's no doubt about that now. From a pure bowling perspective, Rashid is first picked. And then it's a question of, you know, who's who's going to give you the best bat-to-bowl combination, bat time, batting times bowling. I still think it's Moali. If, if, if England can get the most out of him, and the, when they've got the most out of him, they've given him a really, really clear role. It's almost like Glenn Maxwell. The more responsibility you give him, I think the better he plays. If you bit part him, I think there's not a lot of value there. I think he's got to do a big job for England. Okay. I've got two words for you and then we'll move on. Mm. Will Jacks. Interesting. Mm. Right. Let's talk a little bit of White Ferns and the T20 World Cup. I guess we should start this off with uh, India under-19s lifting the women's mm. under-19 World Cup. Uh, I said to you guys on the text, a crazy semi-final, Australia versus England, both teams conspiring to... Uh, win a game um, that they couldn't lose and, and then both uh, managed to do both of those things within the space of about five minutes. But India really showing their strength in, in depth and a couple of girls that have played in the, you know, the full edition, yeah. um, probably the difference between the two sides, you know, in that, in that final England versus India, but congratulations to the Indian, Indian girls. Mm. Yeah, I'll, and I'll, I'll, I'll jump in Stu because IPLW or WIPL or WPL, whatever the acronym that they settle on is coming up. So what a fantastic advertisement for the strength of that competition, India winning the Under-19 Women's World Cup. They're going to have a couple of big names retire from their international side in the next year or two if they haven't already. So this next crop of, of young women playing for India is a great advertisement for that WIPL. It's going to be a huge tournament. And they're going to be, and you know, they were strong before. They're going to be even stronger in two or three years' time. It's fantastic to see for the women's game. Yeah, and and um, I mean, on the New Zealand front, you know, we had uh, Georgia Plummer, Fran Jonas. Unfortunately, was was in that squad and then injured her calf. 
you know, in the warm-up games, I think, were just before the tournament, so didn't didn't play a part. But, yeah, New Zealand knocked out by the eventual winners, India, in that semi-final. But, yeah, great, as you say, it's just a great platform for for putting the those players on the map, isn't it, in, in terms of international cricket. And, again, we're going to have the, the, T, or the T20 World Cup starts very, very soon in February. February 12th, I think, is New Zealand's first game up against Australia. And I think if you're talking about the squad, it's very similar to the Commonwealth Games squad that New Zealand selected uh, Bernadine Bezadenhout has uh, returned to the squad, um, but it, I think the main talking points are sort of around all the the more experienced players that the Lee Kasparik, the Kate Ibrahims that are consistently performing at domestic level but seem to be overlooked at international level for for whatever reason. Um, but you know, I think the same kind of players are going to be the the key ones, and and that sort of brings us to Sophie Devine, who's kind of very much on the edge as whether she's going to be fit for that first game against Australia, which, you know, I th- I think probably as we all stand here now, we expect Australia to, to top this group. New Zealand and South Africa are the other contenders in that group. But, you know, I think New Zealand's going to at least need a good World Cup from the likes of Devine, Bates, Kerr, as usual, if we weren't going to challenge well, any the door, of those sides. the door's open for New Zealand to, to top two in that group because South Africa have had a huge out this week. In fact, only in the sort of recent 24 to 48 hours, Danifan Niekirk has been ruled out having failed a fitness test. Now, I know I've sent some thoughts on the Slack channel around around this. We may, we may or may not have time for me to, to share my prepared remarks, but in terms of impact, that's going to be huge for South Africa talismanic leader, fantastic batter, very, very handy bowler, also life partner of Marazan Cap, who, who shapes to be another key player. Like the mental and emotional impact of her being left out in such tragic, well, not tragic, but such contentious circumstances surely has to have an impact on her partner, right? So there's, there's big impacts happening in that South African side. If they can't steal themselves and put that all behind them, there's a huge opportunity here for New Zealand to go through top two in that group. Yeah, well, look, I mean, in in a weird kind of way, I, I almost hope that if if it comes to it and Sophie Devine needs a couple more days, that they don't risk her against Australia and they just say, look, honestly, we're probably going to lose this game. It's a very defeatist attitude, but to make this World Cup semi-finals, we're going to have to win the other games. You know, if, obviously, if we beat Australia, that would be amazing. But you know, the goal is to get yourself into a semi-final, to get yourself into not those knockout games when anything can happen. And that South Africa game is going to be the the crucial one that you would think that they were going to have to win. So, yeah, if, if I was doing, if I was managing that situation, that's what I'd be trying to do. So I was actually just trying to get on to the to the TAB to see what the second line of betting odds were, but Baldy's uh, watchdog blocked me from uh, getting <laughs> onto the gambling sites here, the Wi-Fi. But um, what what. Australia are the world champions. They're a very, very good side. Who who do you see knocking them off? Who are the team that could India. win the World Cup? Well, I think India can. Uh, India beat Australia in a super over, what, a couple of months? No, not even that long ago. It was. It might have been even this year that they beat Australia in a super over. They've got, they've got the talent to be able to do it. They'll back themselves having beaten Australia recently. Um, I think they're going to they're going to be the they're going to be the biggest contender. England have played very well against Australia in the past. They're also a show, and who knows what I mean? Who knows what's going to happen with New Zealand and South Africa? Honestly, New Zealand could turn up on their day and beat anybody. South Africa, 
maybe without Donovan Niekirk, but but a good South African side could turn up on their day and be anybody. I don't think Australia is a lay-down Mazir to win the World Cup. Yes, they're strong favourites, but if you have a look at the international ICC, T20 and ODI sides of the year, there's only two or three Australians in those sides, so there's plenty of talent out there that on their day, any one of those women could take a big knockout game away from Australia. Well, I mean, that's staggering that those players only made it, and I think this can probably be... Um, I've got a comment here that's probably transitions us to the Super Smash and that I think the strength of Australian cricket, you see it when we've just seen a couple of imports come over to, to you know, the New Zealand Super Smash in the, on the women's side of things, you know, and Laura Harris and Charlie Knott who come over from, you know, the WBBL and, so, and immediately are like look like they're on another you know on a whole another level the the debuts that they had for for the blaze which feels unfair the blaze already an incredibly strong side they do lose all of their white ferns but then you know those two players come in and just you know suddenly they're they're a step above it feels like everyone else in that competition and, and raise that level so yeah look if Australia if Australia don't win this tournament it'll be a huge shock let's Stay actually with uh, New Zealand uh, cricket. I know we segued off and then talked a little bit about uh, the wider field, but we started out talking about the, the White Ferns and their chances. Ian Smith's made some comments this week about the Super Smash and suggested to New Zealand cricket, I think, that they need to have a little bit of a think about the competition. Uh, how can it compete with the rest of the T20 leagues going on um, around the world? Um, so look, I think good time for us to maybe sort of dive into that, particularly with the proliferation of T20 cricket um, around the world. And, and especially because I think between us, we've seen a, a fair bit of the smash this year, actually, down at um, Eden Park at Roval, whether notwithstanding. Um, so yeah, are his comments fair? Something to be considered? What, you know, what would the ramifications be, do you think, uh, for making some changes to that super smash? Before we discuss it in a, a bit more detail, I'd be interested, in, I don't know if you have prepared remarks about this, Baldi and even Binksy, around uh, the impact of, or the hundreds probably too early, but uh, the BBL in terms of, in terms of like that, the way that they're viewed, right? They're viewed as these kind of big money tournaments where they get, you know, all of these overseas stars and they they get the big TV deals and, and all of that kind of stuff. Have they proved a financial success? And as well as that, do we think that these T20 leagues outside of the IPL, which I think is a separate thing in, in itself, actually are strengthening the domestic game? Because when I look at the, what the Super Smash is, it, it isn't those tournaments. And I, I don't think it ever can be just because... We play at the same time as the BBL. And, and, you know, Ian Smith had sort of talked about, you know, possibly we need to think about changing it at different to a different window and, and all of that sort of stuff so that we can actually. But there's just too many windows now. There's the South African one. There's the Dubai one. PSL. There's the PSL. There's, there's, like, to actually find a window. We've seen how terrible this summer's been weather-wise. To actually find a window in New Zealand, I, I don't think you can you can necessarily do that and still attract all the players. And if you do that, it's a hugely different financial situation. So when I think about this tournament, I think it's a domestic tournament and we want to make it a platform for our domestic players to shine and a platform for our domestic players to get a good range of T20 cricket. So Mm. I think comparing it to how those other leagues have developed as big money uh, entities... Mm is kind of an interesting way to, to frame this. 
I think the model that New Zealand could look to is is what do minor leagues do in other sports? So I think I think primarily when I think about this, I think about basketball and the way that the Australian and New Zealand National Basketball League kind of has reinvented itself over the years, not as a competitor to going and playing in Europe or a competitor to leagues in the United States, mm. but an avenue or a pathway, a vehicle for young talent to come and play their game as, and I'm talking about attracting overseas talent, right? As much as attracting New Zealand talent, right? Um, so how do you make the game interesting uh, for domestic audiences here in New Zealand? What if you could attract young 18, 19-year-old Phenoms from England, from potentially, I don't know, the West Indies, places like that, maybe even a, a young Bangladeshi or Afghani player who's 18 or 19 years of age, has a bit about them, but we, you know, we don't know if they're capable of taking that next step, or from an associate nation. What if we could get them in as imports to, to, to bolster that domestic league? Have it as the same kind of young stars pathway that the Australian National Basketball League have. Now they're in talks to have LeBron James's son potentially come and play in that league, right? Because they've created that young stars pathway. I think that's the avenue to that, to, to that for that competition for higher relevance. I think it's great here in New Zealand. But if we're looking at as a competitor to the BBL, to the PSL, to even the Bangladeshi Premier League or the Caribbean Premier League, it's not that, right? It doesn't have the money or the drawing power to compete against those other leagues in the same time slot. And it certainly doesn't have enough money to carve out its own window in those um, in those kind of hurdy-gurdy merry-go-round of domestic leagues that goes on all around the world. Because New Zealand just doesn't have enough money to pay players to fly this far to play all of those games. The, Australia doesn't have enough money to have those stars for that long a period to compete with those leagues. So I think that's got to be the avenue they look at. What are some innovative things that we can do to bring young talent into the game? I think something that the, that the New Zealand cricket could do that would actually be a little bit revolutionary, and we have to be revolutionary. We can't just do what the other 2020 leagues are doing because we just won't be able to compete. But we actually need to have our nationally contracted players playing mm -hmm. in, this, in, in, in the Super Smash. The, the issue with that is obviously the Super Smash is going over a, a certain amount of time. Yeah, yeah. They're going to have to reinvent it into kind of like a festival of cricket, a two-week kind of application... Baldy's had a light bulb eureka moment, um, but that's what I think they need to do. Uh, if, to you're gonna, if you're going to reinvent the game, what made New Zealand rugby the world powerhouse in the 90s and 2000s and 2010s? The islands. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and super rugby, right? The, playing, playing against the best opposition week in, week out, in the best domestic competition in the Southern Hemisphere, made New Zealand rugby very, very strong. Or, we were pretty good before that. It, good before that and good since. But, but my point of view is that Australian domestic cricket was really, really strong. Australian international cricket became, became strong in the, in the 90s, right, because of the strength of domestic cricket. So what if New Zealand could create, and I'm not saying that this would be easy to do because the Big Bash kind of is a closed shop, but what if New Zealand could, could negotiate with the Big Bash and go, right, we want to enter four franchises in the Big Bash and play a 12-team, 11 games, everyone plays each other once, Big Bash tournament across Australia and New oh, Zealand thanks. across Christmas. Why not? I just don't like it. I just don't think it's, I don't think it's feasible in terms of, uh, well, what, you know, I, I actually think this is domestic competition. Like, I, I, don't, I don't actually know why. I, I think some of your points that you guys are making are, are certainly valid and, and about bringing you know, more relevance to the competition and playing it over a shorter period of time so that people can kind of invest in it. But 
I don't think it needs it, it's a domestic competition. I think if we want to talk about trying to develop New Zealand cricketers and what I think if you look at the last 10 years and what has really worked for New Zealand is the A program. The A program did it has done a, a really wonderful job of every time teams come to play here in New Zealand, we put out an A squad to play against their best players. We've just sent squad over to India, putting players in those kind of environments. We were doing that a lot more. Obviously, COVID disrupted all of that and, you know, it threw us off for a couple of years. But, you know, putting, I think the step between domestic cricket and international cricket is that's where we want to develop. And, you know, that, that's because there's too many domestic cricketers for the, for the population in New Zealand, right? Four franchises playing against eight Australian franchises is, is, a, is a better number, right? That's your top 60 cricketers amongst four teams rather than the top 75 amongst six. Not to be disparaging to those other 15 cricketers that are, my maths isn't quite right there. But, <laughs> but my point is, if you want to bridge the gap between domestic level and international level, you have to create a higher standard of competition. And you can only do that with fewer sides or a different program. If you have four teams playing against the best eight Australian teams, then there's certainly lots of competition for those people who have been identified as strong candidates. Sorry, uh, too much from me, Binksy. That's right. Look, we, we could have probably uh, cut this down by about 15 minutes, this segment. But I, th- I, I think n- listening to your comments, the thing that's ringing out for me is no one's really defined what is the purpose of the Super Smash? Um, and, you know, the wording of Ian Smith's question, uh, and I don't know if this is the exact wording written in the Slack channel, was how can it compete with the rest of the T20 leagues? So if the question is how can it compete with the T20 leagues, the answer isn't bringing in emerging talent because that's only going to develop emerging talent from Bangladesh or in England in different conditions. If it is that we bring in gone overseas players it's not going to happen because the window clashes as we've said with the uh, with the big bash and they've tried that prior to covid you know you had a few real marquee players if we're being honest towards the end of their careers the likes of Mahela Jarodna mm. played for the Stags I think um, you know Luke Wright came over and played for Auckland you know we so, had a young Sam Curran yeah uh, young played. but again it, it wasn't a Dre Russ it, no. it, it wasn't an MS Doney so I think the, the first question is, what do you want it to achieve? And I think if you look at the 100, the 100, you know, its stated aim was to bring cricket to a wider audience. There is no doubt that that has absolutely fueled women's cricket in, um, in, in England. It, it's been fantastic from that perspective. I've got to say, I, I kind of agree with Baldy in terms of a possible solution, <laughs> which is making my head hurt. But... The, the season's going to be the same. The Big Bash has just reduced its number of games from 433 in the season, I think, where you play everybody home and away 19 <laughs> times, four at the Marvel, seven at the Optus and all that kind of jazz, to, I think, a more manageable tournament next year because they've realised that they've tried to, what is it, milk the golden goose? Or I, I can't remember the analogy. But look, I think ultimately that might be a, a question mark for me is whether you have a condensed uh, window in you know probably January January February which you know Raj has talked about so you know I'm taking the best bits of all of your plans here but I, I, I think that conjoining with an Australian tournament and getting those those players that kind of uh, that kind of exposure that would be the answer for me a southern hemisphere competition that essentially has a window that no one else is really going to play in so four or five weeks school holidays, it promotes the game, you play double headers with your women's teams, bish bosh, big bash. bash. 
Nice. Look, I, I, I'm not a huge fan. We won't go and you know. I think it's it, it's a it's a topic that we talk about for ages. But I do think it's a, an incredibly valid question that Smith has raised, and that yeah. I, and what you said before, we they have to determine what the Super Smash is, and if it is just a domestic tournament that is about you know giving the Ben Lockroses and Matt Matt Bacon and and Kate Anderson and all of those players a chance to shine and develop their game. Absolutely, that's completely but then the fine. Step up is going to be too big for them to go straight into international cricket. That they've almost got to see that as a gateway to another franchise. Almost, they play pre-Christmas here and get picked up as a a draft player into the BBL after Christmas or something like that. That, that, that they've got, well, and potentially that's what's happened with Henry Shipley. Right, he's gone and played domestic cricket here in New Zealand, done very, very well. I mean, thrown to the wolves, yeah. going going over there, playing on Indian tracks as a seamer against the best bat. Some of the best batters in the world, but you know they clearly targeted him in those yeah. those games, and you know he, he didn't really have a, a way to answer. hadn't played any you know New Zealand A cricket, hadn't had that chance to step up. So yeah, absolutely awesome. Well, guys, that does wrap up this week in cricket. You are going to hear an interview now with Jim Morrison, who's going to talk about the upcoming over forties and over fifties. Uh, world cricket events um, we're lucky enough to have a long time friend of the podcast uh, hopefully in that New Zealand uh, New Zealand squad for the over 40s tournament but Jim's going to tell us a little bit more about that Lippy is going to do the honours and splice that in but for now it's good night from us here all in Auckland we'll see you soon good night hi everyone Stu jumping in here at the end of the episode just to share a chat with Jim Morrison from New Zealand over 40s and 50s cricket Top Water boys are uh, especially interested this year as a, a good friend of the show, Todd McDonald's, made his way into the New Zealand Over 40s squad. So Jim has volunteered to to join me on the show and, and talk us through what's ahead for these two sides and explain how we can follow the fortunes of the teams and, and even explain how people can kind of get involved if, if they want to start uh, entering the, uh, the Over 40s and 50s movement as, as well. So yeah, Jim, welcome to the show. G'day, Stu. Thanks very much for having me. No worries. Thanks for thanks for joining us. So, look, regular listeners to the show will kind of know that that Baldy's usually the one who does the explainers whenever we have preview a series or anything like that, a World Cup. But I'm I'm sort of hoping you can start this chat by by giving us the details about uh, this upcoming series that the New Zealand Over Forties are playing in Christchurch. Which teams are playing? When? Where? All, all those details. If you can fill the listeners in on on that kind of stuff. Right, I'll try to emulate uh, Baldy with a little explainer. <laughs> so this is the first ever over 40s international series in the world. Wow. The whole concept is fairly new, obviously. Uh, so we've got Australia coming over for three matches against New Zealand, three one-day matches, 45 overs aside. Each of those two sides will also play a warm-up match against New Zealand A. So that's a total of five matches in six days. Uh, all in Christchurch at Main Power Oval in Rangiora and Hagley Nursery Ground in Christchurch. How did nice. I do? Nice. And, uh, and look, I mentioned Todd McDonald earlier, who might not be a household name just yet, but um, look, there are plenty of players that New Zealanders who've kind of followed cricket for a while uh, will remember. I mean, yeah, I'm 38 years old myself, play cricket in a few different regions. There's definitely... A lot of names I recognised when I sort of saw the um, provincial tournament that went on before uh, selecting these sides. But why don't you tell us about, I guess, a few of the big names that that have made made it through to that New Zealand A and, and A and New Zealand sides, and and maybe a couple that we should keep our eye on that people might not have heard on. 
Yeah, sure. So the thing about uh, Masters cricket or Veterans cricket at this level is it's not all about the big names. You know, it's not mm. like the, the Black Clash or whatever. It's, it's not celebrity cricket. You yeah. do get the occasional ex-international or ex-first-class cl- uh, player who's still playing and, and keen to do this, but it's more your guys who are still playing good, serious, competitive club cricket and have never stopped. Because once you stop cricket, it could be quite hard to get back into it. So, mm. uh, look, I mean, to answer your question, in the over 40s, we've got the Marshall twins, Hamish mm. Marshall and James Marshall, both of whom represented New Zealand, as I'm sure your listeners uh, would know. We've got a couple of guys who have played first-class cricket. Uh, Deepak June played uh, a bit in India and also for Wellington. And uh, Hardeep Singh also played a bit in India. He's moved over here now. Mm. Those are the only guys who have actually played first-class cricket. We've got another guy, Steve Hobson, who played for South Africa under-19s. In terms of players to watch, um, you know, obviously the Marshall Twins, people know them. Oh, sorry, I forgot Peter Connell, our captain. He uh, played for Ireland. He played Mm. a number of one-day internationals for Ireland. Um, The guy I'm going to say look out for is is Hardeep Singh, who I mentioned. He's an opening batter from Christchurch, and he just plays some ridiculous shots that you don't see usually at this level of cricket. We're talking, you know, your reverse scoops and switches. and uh, You know, half the time he's left-handed, half the time he's right-handed. Just uh, really, really entertaining cricketer. Um, But, you know, right through the New Zealand lineup, we've got uh, some pretty pretty attractive cricketers in a cricketing sense. (laughs) Nice. And, um, you know, that kind of moves on to like the standard of cricket. I'm sure listeners, you mentioned before, it's, um, you know, players that have been playing at, at a decent level and kind of just haven't haven't stopped. I guess, you know, sometimes when um, you mentioned the Black Clash as well, which, uh, I don't know, the standard of cricket certainly uh, at times is not is not the highest in, in that game. Um, and so I guess I, on a scale of Black Clash versus, I don't know, the first class game here in New Zealand, what, what can people expect from, from this side? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, and one of the things that I was really keen to establish when I started the over 50s about five years ago was that this is serious competitive cricket. There's a social mm. element, but it's serious competitive cricket. It's not another golden oldies tournament or you know just for old guys to have four beers and then go out and bat you know if you Mm. want to do that there's places to do that but this is for guys who are still really competitive uh, and play good hard cricket even though they're in their 40s or 50s Uh, in terms of the the standard or I don't know how it compares to say the the black clash but you've probably got a more um, condensed level whereas there was quite a lot of variation in, in those sort of matches. Yeah. Uh, in this, you know, everyone's a, a pretty good standard. Uh, you do have some exceptional players, obviously, but uh, I think the main thing is the competitiveness. It's it's played hard, but in a really good spirit. And you, you mentioned um, setting it up and, and organising it. How, so do you want to give us how, how it all sort of came together? I mean, you, you mentioned it was the first time that uh, this New Zealand over 40 side has been put together. This is, is this something then it's not uh, top down from New Zealand cricket? Is there any New Zealand cricket support here? Yeah. Fill me in on those details. 
Right. We're not linked with New Zealand cricket. There is a loose affiliation between New Zealand cricket and Veterans Cricket New Zealand, which includes over 40s, over 50s, over 60s and over 70s. But there's no uh, you know, financial support or, or any uh, administrative links. In terms of how it started, the over 60s have been going for about a decade. Mm-hmm. Um, a friend of mine in Australia called Sterling Hammond, he is a big mover and shaker in veterans cricket over in Australia, and they've been doing it there for 20, 25 years. And he wanted to start an over 50s World Cup. So he said, Jim, we need you to uh, establish a, a over 50s team in New Zealand. There was nothing here at the time. So I just did the best I could and, <clears throat> excuse me, cobbled together a, a few players and we did all right. Went to the World Cup in 2018, made the semis. And then after that, things got a bit more serious. We started having a national tournament. Uh, guys started hearing about it, the, the standard rose. We had another World Cup in South Africa in 2020, which was cancelled halfway through due to COVID. Yeah. And that's basically being replayed in March of this year. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's it in a nutshell, I guess. Uh, and then the over 40s started last winter uh, because there's an over 40s World Cup being set up for the end of 2023, and that's going to be in Pakistan. Yeah, so you um, you said there's no New Zealand cricket support. I did um, I did a bit of Googling and, and found sort of New Zealand cricket uh, at least giving it a plug on and stuff on the articles. I guess in, um, I don't know, lot, big picture stuff, do you kind of envisage that, you know, maybe this can become like a, I don't know, we have New Zealand under-19s, under-17s, we've got the under-19 females at the the World Cup at the moment and um, it's on the ICC TV and streams mm-hmm. and all of that. Like, I don't know, where do you, do you have those big picture goals? Yeah, absolutely. It would be fantastic to get uh, closer links with both New Zealand cricket and with ICC uh, at the international masters cricket level, we are working to get affiliated with the ICC. Uh, it is a valid, genuine age group, like under 19s or or whatever. It's mm. it's growing rapidly. I believe it uh, that veterans cricket is the fastest growing demographic in terms of cricket participation in the country. Uh, so hopefully we will get recognised uh, in that sense by New Zealand Cricket, by ICC, uh, in terms of sponsorship. At the moment, everybody's self-funding, uh, which makes it tough. Uh, so, you know, we're hoping that all those things will come together in, in time. And um, you talked about the games being in Christchurch. Can people outside of Christchurch follow along? I assume people can just turn up to those grounds if they want to to actually watch and in person, but um, will there be live streams or anything like that that, w- that we can keep track of? Yeah, absolutely. So, yes, of course, people can, can come along, free entry. Uh, th- there will be live streaming uh, through um, a system called Pitch Vision and the, the links uh, that will be commentated on as well. And the links will be on our Facebook page. So it's basically just a quick search for over 40s cricket, New Zealand over 40s cricket, and then all the links will be there on, on match days. Cool. And um, you mentioned the over 50s World Cup. I assume that's the same and that's not too far away. That's right. That's in March. So that's coming up. Uh, That's a big priority as well. We've had a uh, national tournament in December, picked an 18 man squad for that. And we're all heading off to that in in March. And there's 14 teams coming for that. Uh, Quite a few ex-international and first class players from around the world involved in that. And that's going to be a fantastic occasion 
uh, as I'm sure the over 40s one and will be in, in due course. Cool. And, and look, um, I guess just finally, other than following along, I'm, I'm sure there are many listeners that um, probably like myself are starting to come to terms with the fact that their their opportunity to maybe represent the black caps have, have passed them by. And um, now they're starting to think, uh, you know, as a 38 year old, now maybe there's a, a new goal that they can aspire to or you know, I'm sure there are others, like you say, who are sort of approaching 40 or 50 and, and want to give it a crack for fitness and the social aspect and, and all of that kind of good stuff. Can you sort of, how, how, how does someone get involved in over 40s and, mm-hmm. and 50s cricket? Is it through the, the clubs or is, uh, do, we, do we approach you uh, directly? Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point, actually. And one of the things that comes through amongst a lot of the over 50s players in particular is that a lot of those guys were fantastic cricketers when they were young, but other things took them away, like their careers or their family, and they never got to pursue that cricketing career because you really do have to be devoted to it. But they were extremely talented, and now they're coming back into cricket uh, at, at a later stage in life, and they're having the opportunity to rep- represent their country. They get the you know the, the baggy cap or whatever it is, and it's such a huge honour for these guys. Mm. Uh, so it is... You know, there's so many benefits, there's health benefits, all that sort of thing as well. So, look, if, if you are interested in, in joining, the best way to start would be to head to the Facebook page that I said. We've got New Zealand over 40s cricket. We've got New Zealand over 50s. Either one of those, send a message. It'll come through to me. I'll get you registered and uh, hook you up with uh, with your local uh, province for the, for the national tournament. It is serious competitive cricket. So we're looking for, you know, good cricketers who are still playing cricket. Um, but yeah, everyone's welcome to, to register that way. So Jim, thanks very much for, for joining us. It's been a, a real pleasure having you on. Uh, but just before I let you go, can you kind of um, summarise all the details about this upcoming tournament against Australia? Yeah, so the series starts on February 19th, goes through to the 24th. Uh, there's a game pretty much every one of those days, Um the 19th and 20th are New Zealand A playing against New Zealand and Australia. And then the 21st, 23rd and 24th are the international matches. The full schedule is on the New Zealand Over 40s Facebook page. Awesome. And, and um, yeah, no doubt uh, we'll probably, this probably won't be the last uh, that people hear from from us about uh, Over 40s and, and 50s cricket. We'll, we'll certainly be following on. As I said, we've got a a very close link to a good friend of ours who's um, he's hoping to be at that World Cup. So uh, yeah, look as uh, like I said, as as someone who's very close to to those ages, um, it's got it certainly got me wondering about whether I should get back in the nets tomorrow and and start thinking about what to do. You guys all heard it. Get stuck in. You know if if. Uh, if you uh, need to, if you feel like getting getting your arm over again or, or getting the pads out, then then get in touch with Jim at, at Over Forties Cricket at, at Facebook. And um, yeah, look, if you enjoyed our show, remember the best way to support us is to subscribe on your podcast app and, and leave a review. It's it's all free. It really helps others find us. And yeah, just thanks for listening. We'll uh, we'll see you again very very soon. Good night. <laughs>